Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk to your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Matt Sparks at NephroSparks on Twitter. Tonight, we have the full filtrate plus three special guests. First, we have a medical student from Mount Sinai, Karina Se. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Karina. I'm a second year MD-PhD student at Mount Sinai and I co-wrote the petition to eliminate race-based EGFR reporting at Mount Sinai. You can find me on Twitter at Karina Sia. And Deidre Cruz, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Deidre Cruz. I'm an adult nephrologist at Johns Hopkins uh, where I study disparities in in kidney disease uh, with a goal to uh, move us closer to kidney health equity. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Deidre Cruz. Ali Poenmeyer, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Ali Poenmeyer. I'm an adult nephrologist at Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco. I'm the founding director of glomcon.org, and I tweet at Poyanmeyer. And we have the full filtrate, Samira. Hi, everyone. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Uh, Very happy to be here with the full field trade today and very grateful for the three guests that we have with us to discuss this important topic. I tweet at SS Farouk. And Jenny? Hi, my name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University in Chicago. And I'm also very excited to be talking about this topic tonight and having a really lively conversation. Joel. Hey, I'm Joel Toff. I'm a clinical nephrologist in Detroit and I tweet at kidney underscore boy. And Swap. Hi, I'm Swap Nalhiramat. I'm a nephrologist epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I uh, I don't have any disclosures for today's topic except for being a, a dark-skinned guy from a country where skin color is highly valued. Um, and I tweet at H Swapnil. We have a full crew. Let's get started. There's nothing that says nephrology more than glomerular filtration. While the direct measure of glomerular filtration can be performed, it is laborious, expensive, and time-consuming process. It is also fraught with its own issues and caveats, inter-estimating equations. The Cockcroft and Galt equation was published in 1976 in the journal Nephron. This formula was used to estimate creatinine clearance from serum creatinine. The formula was derived from 249 all-white veterans and marked the beginning of a new era the era of estimating equations. The formula used creatinine, age, weight, and sex in the equation. Of note, the authors used a 15% reduction in women because, quote, different relative amounts of fat and muscle in women. For the next 20 years, it was a time-honored tradition for medical students to recite the Kopkroft-Galt equation from memory on rounds. I distinctly remember having to do this on several occasions at the University of Arkansas back in 2002. The equation was creatinine clearance equals 140 minus age times the mass in kilograms times 0.85 if female divided by 72 times the serum creatinine. 
Medical students were required to recite this because that was back when you didn't have a phone in your pocket that could do this. The Schwartz equation followed in 1987, principally used in pediatrics. In 1999, Levy and colleagues published the MDRD equation in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It took a few years to gain traction, but eventually was commonplace in clinical medicine. Instead of 24-hour clearance, this equation estimated glomerular filtration rate. The MDRD was a multi-center controlled trial evaluating the effect of dietary protein restriction and strict blood pressure control on CKD progression. 1,070 participants of this clinical trial were selected as the training sample to make the equation, and 558 in the validation sample. They used a stepwise multivariable regression to determine variables that predict GFR, measure GFR. They found a signal that black ethnicity independently of predicted higher GFR and included a comment to support this. Previous studies have shown that, on average, black persons have a greater, greater muscle mass than white persons, end quote. 197 patients in this study were classified as black. Moreover, the cause of kidney disease in the study population um, were from a vast majority not diabetes and a high prevalence of polycystic kidney disease and glomerular disorders. Variables used in the MDRD equation were a correction factor for black, increased the EGFR by 21%, and this improved the model significantly. Female sex, age, and creatinine were the other variables utilized. In 2009, the CKD-EPI equation was introduced. The CKD-EPI equation drew from 10 studies, about 8,000 participants, and was validated in 16 additional studies, 4,000 participants. Again, a stepwise multivariable regression model determined that the inclusion of a correction factor for black race improved the model. The CKD-EPI equation is now commonly used. During the last several years, many in the nephrology community have called out the use of race in estimating equations. Several institutions have already removed race from the estimating equation for GFR, and on the national scene, the American Society of Nephrology and the National Kidney Foundation have convened a national task force to take up this important issue. Importantly, medical students have been central to advocating for the examination of race in these equations. The crux of this issue is that race is not a biologic marker, but a socio-political construct that does not predict biology. To examine this issue in greater detail, we're going to dive deep on this topic. Karina, tell us about your experience with this equation, how you first came to hear about the issue, and sort of um, how you as a, a group of medical students tackled this problem. So the story starts in my first year of medical school, um, in my physiology class. We had a lecture by Dr. Stacy Leesman, who is our director um, of our physiology course and a practicing nephro nephrologist. And she gave a talk titled, Can Math Be Racist? Um, and in that talk, she took a critical look into EGFR and the race cor correction factor, I should add in quotes. Um, and that was the first time we had talked about EGFR and we had talked about clinical measures of how it's measured and how it's calculated. And we learned what the MDRD formula was. She pointed out the sample size. She pointed out all the issues with it. And we talked about race being used as biology, even though it is a sociopolitical construct. Um, 
And so that was the first time we heard about it. And I think our entire class of medical students came away from that talk feeling shocked. Um, and we had had our eyes opened. Um, but we didn't really know how to change it or if it was worth changing. And we're not nephrologists. We don't know the complexity of the issue. So we figured there must be something in place, some reason why it's the best thing that's still used. Um, fast forward to all of the political unrest after the uh, killing of George Floyd. And one of the things I saw on Twitter was that Harvard Mass General had removed um, the race correction factor in EGFR. And I thought, well, if Harvard did it, then maybe Mount Sinai will do it. So I immediately texted one of my good friends and classmates, Paloma Roscoe Scott, and I said, let's do this. Let's, I think we can change this at Mount Sinai. So we figured, let's just start writing a petition and see what happens. So we spent that weekend writing and writing and going over everything and doing our research. We read pretty much all there was to read about the history of EGFR uh, estimation um, and the way race play, played a role in that. And we read about race-based medicine. And uh, we looped in Dr. Leesman. And she said, oh, actually, there's a petition going on at UCSF as well, if you guys want to take a look at that. You know, so we looked at the one at UCSF. We edited ours um, with a group at our school, the Human Rights and Social Justice Group. And as we were writing it, we thought, okay, who is our audience? And we realized, okay, our audience is hospital administrators, it's researchers, it's doctors. We cannot write this from an, a lens of anger or a lens of being medical students. We need to write this um, like we're writing a review paper. We need to write this in an informed manner. Um, we need to cite all of our sources. Um, and we don't want to necessarily out ourselves as medical students. We want to be taken seriously here. So we really did our due diligence. How, how different we, was it from the UCSF one? Did you end up being quite different or pretty similar? It's different in intentional ways. Um, we wanted to be evidence-based. We wanted to be an educational resource first and a petition second. Um, so we tried to summarize the evidence as best as we could. Right. And the UCSF one really is calling for signatures. It's much more of a petition. Is that right? Right. Right. We wanted our signatures to be in agreement rather than trying to force anything. We just we felt like if we had an educational document and the school didn't care, the school wasn't going to change it, at least we had gotten the information across in a way that we wanted it to be told to a wide audience. Do you have a history of promoting social justice? Is this something you've done throughout your life? I'm actually a super agreeable person. I never thought I'd write a petition in my entire life. So it's amazing that that I even did. Um, Paloma has a lot more experience than I do, and that's why she was the first person I thought of to, um, to ask to help me with this. I come from a very scientist background, and my intrigue in the topic is, okay, as a scientist, we are kind of taught that science is infallible. When we, when we create an when we have evidence, we follow the evidence, and we make something that works with the evidence. Um, so to see something that in practice is not being used correctly or doesn't follow the evidence being used and is affecting patients, I was like, well, let's take a look at the science and take a really critical look at how this piece of science became um, what's practiced um, 
yeah, I actually don't really have a history of social justice until I came to Mount Sinai and met a group of really like-minded people who have been pushing for really real change. And that's what's inspired me. So. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, as a faculty member at Mount Sinai and a, you know, nephrologist and transplant nephrologist, I think as a group, it was really inspiring for us to see all the work that y'all did. Um, we were seeing it around the country, but to see it in our own institution and from our own medical students um, was really sparked a lot of conversation. And so I was wondering if you can share with us a little bit about the response to the petition. I know that was goal number two, um, but kind of how was it received and did you get, get any feedback the first thing we did was sent it out to our mentors. We wanted to get as many physicians on it first before sending it out to the general public. Um, so we reached out individually and we're really surprised that um, Dr. Murphy uh, signed on pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I think, I think she was signature number one, right? <laughs> well, we put her at the top because we wanted her name to be read. Fair first. enough. So, uh, one of the rules we have on Freely Filtered is we can't name drop. I mean, we all know who Dr. Murphy okay. is, but we just, just for our audience, who's Dr. Murphy? So, Dr. Murphy is the chair of the health system um, at Mount Sinai. And she is also a transplant nephrologist and immunologist and has done over her career a lot of advocacy work in a lot of different arenas to really advocate for patients with kidney disease. So to have her support, I think, also for the rest of the faculty at Mount Sinai was really kind of a sign of um, support for, the, for your petition. Was she on the, was she on the blue ribbon panel? Uh, she was not, but, you know, if I get my way, she will be on it soon. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So yeah, can so, you give me a I, give me a we'll, timeline of this? You were doing this in June, is when you started this. Um, I think it was June. Oh goodness, no. that's what that feels like. Um, that's when uh, George Floyd was killed. Yeah, I think that's it was right after the Harvard announcement, which I think was late June, um, either that or early July. But um, and then you turned it in around like two weeks ago. Oh, brand new, yeah. brand new. Yeah, recent. And besides, okay, um, go on. I wanted to say, actually, that there we did get pushback in that first stage, too. When we were first sending it out to physicians, I got emails back saying, I think there's two sides to this. I think we need to take a closer look at the evidence. Um, and and I, I don't really know what's out there, but I, I know this is being debated. So I think there's a healthy debate surrounding this. I got that from a few physicians, and I emailed back, essentially, with sources and sources and sources. Um, and I said, well, read this and read this and read this, and I'm open to having a discussion about it. And I was really inspired because multiple physicians wrote back saying, well, I just did my research, and I'm signing on to this petition. I think it's a great cause, and um, thank you. I've learned something. And as a medical student, there's, it's not often that we get to teach our physician mentors things. So that was extremely powerful in making us feel like just because we had a different perspective and we had a fresh lens and we were coming into this from a lens of, we don't really know what we're doing, but we're going to be an open book and read all the literature about this and something doesn't sit right to us. Um, it was wonderful that uh, to feel that we were being listened to by our mentors and that they were willing to make the change. Yeah, yeah. so that's so it's sort of the, it's amazing, right? Because I guess Stacey Leisman was, you know, opened your eyes saying, hey, there are some problems with it. Uh, but a lot of us have known there are problems with it, but we haven't done anything about it. You know, we have talked among ourselves and we have said the literature is bad, uh, but no action has been taken. And it's amazing that you guys did it, you know, and it's all over the country. University of Washington, Harvard, UCSF, uh, name, uh, name the institute. Um, it, 
in some ways you know i'm i'm ashamed that we haven't done, we did not ever do this but in some ways i'm proud that you know your generation took this up and actually did the change uh, i don't know what it was, was it was a critical mass and maybe you know it was the world events that were happening uh, just as a phenomena it's it's amazing um, and i will say that if you talk to dr leesman she will explicitly say that the reason she gives that lecture every year is because one year they were discussing EGFR and someone raised their hand and said, well, what, what's the African-American about? What is that all about? That seems, I feel like, what about someone who's mixed race? What about someone um, who's uh, black but not from not American? Um, what happens then? And um, so she did some digging and student did some digging and that's how the lecture was born. So the lecture was even born from a student and then now it's being used uh, by students, inspiring students to make the change at our hospital. So I love that it comes full circle like that. So if I could ask, what did you replace uh, or what, what is reported now? So if race isn't a part of what's reported? So it hasn't been implemented yet, but the recommendation um, is just the lower number. So removing the correct, the corrected in quotes value and just reporting the lower number. Yeah, we have a, a work group um, within the institution that has uh, players from kind of all around the hospital from different departments that would have an important role. So for example, IT with whatever would need to be implemented in our electronic medical record, pharmacy, nephrology, transplant nephrology, as well as some other disciplines. And the group has been meeting over the last several weeks and has come up with some recommendations. And we're kind of at the stage now to see what might, um, what might happen next. You know, uh, at the, uh, there was a webinar last night from the University of Chicago, uh, four speakers. It was ap- on this topic. It was absolutely outstanding. Uh, hopefully by the time this gets published, they'll have their uh, video up. They've promised to publish the video. But they talked about uh, the different options. And you are choosing option A, which is just report uh, the lower value, the uh, essentially non-black value for um, either MDRD or CKD epi, depending on which equation you use. And uh, the speaker, which was Dr. Poe, said, what you've now done is you've taken uh, all the contributions from African-Americans that have done all these measured GFRs, and you have eliminated them. You've essentially take and taken uh, studies that had an integrated population with African-Americans and and uh, Caucasian Americans, and of course, Hispanics and Asians also, and now have produced something like the Framingham study, which is an entirely uh, European American uh, values. And uh, you really have negated their contribution to uh, the science. I, I think that's an important point. Um, and, and I think he is right. I think I, 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 I respectfully disagree with Dr. Post's approach that, 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 Disconsidering this discrimination on itself may be racist or or or, or not um, counterproductive. I think actually, I I, I I think that it does probably more harm than benefit. But I think it is an important uh, point that um, that across the population as a whole, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, things vary. And and that we kind of ought to look at that. Um, it it is, and but it's not easy to look at it. You know, just imagine we would have um, 
you know, if you, if you go back, you can also imagine a parallel universe where people have uh, had had measured GFRs, but never looked at the at the differences among different ethnicities. And thirty year, forty year later, you would say, "Why wouldn't do? Why wouldn't you do that?" You see that the patients from the African American community are disproportionately affected. Uh, they have a higher prevalence of ESRD. They do worse. Why would you not look at what what the GFR is, whether it's different, not, and why wouldn't you dedicate and uh, commit? Uh, resources to study that right so i think intent in its heart and its intent it's good to try to see the different populations which are affected differently whether there is a higher prevalence of hypertension whether there is a, a lower higher number of a1c in average and on all those things i think the problem is with with sticking with one number one number, whether it's the lower number or whether it's the upper number, the problem is that no matter what number you pick, it's fraud. You're taking that number to make decisions which you shouldn't, which you can't. You cannot take a population-wide number and, and apply that individually for an individual decision-making. These numbers are good for population-wide assessment. Okay, uh, you want to run a large epi study and say, what is the prevalence of that? Uh, what is the average of GFR of that? that? Okay, do that. That's fine. For, for a given individual, it does not help you uh, to, to, to estimate what the true GFR is. The, for that, the current measurement is too imprecise. And if we take one number, we imply a precision which doesn't have. I think that's a really, really important point and something that also came up in our work group, which, you know, should come up more than just in a work group. But th that E, the estimate, I think is often overlooked. And we just even talk about it as what's the GFR, what's the GFR. But as you said, I mean, it is incredibly imprecise. And I think our more precise measurements, even something like a 24-hour urine collection is incredibly underused. And I think this is maybe highlighting that a bit. So I think that we have to really remember that this is an estimate. And if there's any question or a need for a more precise measure, we do have some tools that we can use. And I think this also goes to an issue in terms of with creatinine, we're having an intersection between physiology and also a social construct. And this idea of precision and race is kind of at conflict with each other. And I think the Vanderbilt student team that was drafting their petition or whatever they were doing uh, to address this issue brought up a really great point, which is nephrology is all about precision and being as exact as possible. We're numbers people. But when you have something like self-reported race and someone, as Karina had mentioned, who's mixed of mixed ethnicity, and you may not actually know your full ancestral background, right? So you may not be able to be, you know, categorized in one way or another that is accurate. And so if you are, you know, for example, 50% African ancestry, would you then cut that multiplier in half for this EGFR equation? Definitely doesn't seem to be um, consistent with how we as nephrologists approach health. And as Matt and I were talking earlier, we definitely need something that's better than creatinine. Deidre, maybe we can pause right here and we can talk about um, disparities in the field of nephrology, which 
Ali alluded to and just sort of give the listeners a, a primer on that. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, part of the reason why this topic becomes so important in our field, perhaps even more so than in some other fields that are also looking at this issue. I know some pulmonary colleagues uh, have reached out, for example, regarding the fact that race is included in their their PFT uh, reports as well. Um, But I think in our case, in kidney disease, it becomes incredibly important because um, disparities in kidney disease are just incredibly profound and they exist across the entire continuum of, of kidney disease whether we're talking about, you know, who's getting kidney disease in the first place to who's who's progressing, who's having uh, access to the optimal therapy, you know, being being transplantation um, and so forth. And so I think when we're talking about something as fundamental as how we actually diagnose um, people as actually having kidney disease and how we how we detect it, uh, how that then informs us in, in how we go about communicating this to people um, with kidney disease, I think it becomes really fundamental. And, um, you know, as I, as I was listening to Karina share their process at, at Mount Sinai, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is, is how we go about um, sharing with our other colleagues, our non-nephrology colleagues who are generally going to be the first people who detect kidney disease in their in their patients, um, you know, we really do have a communication issue, <laughs> I think, um, with respect to being pretty complicated already for a lot of people, you know, is it should they use creatinine? Should they use EGFR? What does it mean? Which one should they report? Um, how do they report it to their patients? And, uh, you know, I know through some of my work, um, and that of others that black patients in particular report often that they were not told that they had kidney disease. Sometimes, you know, we're, they may appear in the emergency department, and for the first time, we're being told that they have um, quite advanced kidney disease or even kidney failure. And we can look back and see that they had documentation of having a, uh, having reduced kidney function, but yet it wasn't communicated to them. And so I think there's a lot of complexity in that. And then another real key challenge is that... Um, or key problem is that we don't always actually invite patients to actually self-identify. We're talking about these equations when developed were using self-identified race. Well, in addition to the complexities around people with who have uh, multiple ethnicities or maybe biracial, I mean, who may identify uh, as being biracial, for example, often they're actually not being asked um, to sort of, to self-identify, and 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 they are being uh, classified in their electronic health record based upon their appearance, essentially. And so there's thinking a lot of problems um, there that are going to be worth tackling. And as we think about changes that there definitely seems to be the will to make uh, surrounding race being included in our EGFR reporting, I think we are going to have to think uh, not only about what that means for the actual estimates that, that we get, but also what that means for how we communicate that to other clinicians and also to to people who have kidney diseases. And so those are, uh, I think, just some of the of the complexities that we're going to have to deal with. Dr. Cruz, could you talk a bit about, I know you've done some work in kidney transplantation and disparities is it, there. Is it Dr. Yeah. Cruz? Is that, is, are we going with Dr. Cruz here? You know, I'm very excited to meet you for the first time, so I'm going to say <laughs> Dr. Only, Cruz. Only if you also call Joel Dr. Kidney Boy, please. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dr. Kidney Boy. I won't accept Dr. Cruz. The, the, the rest of the field treat has lost my respect, but you still have mine. So, hey, it's okay to fangirl. <laughs> We're excited. We're all excited to have you on. And I, I just wonder if you could speak a bit about just in particular disparities in kidney transplantation. And obviously, um, the EGFR has some implication for that. For sure. So, and I, and I have had the opportunity to, to collaborate on some um, some work in kidney transplantation, particularly with my um, colleague, Dr. Tangela Purnell, who's done a lot of work around uh, looking at racial differences when it comes to access to 
transplantation as well as outcomes in transplantation. And so I think when we think about who is getting referred for transplantation, for example, we know that there are uh, racial disparities in that. And that is likely for a number of reasons. I'm actually of the opinion that this issue of um, race and its inclusion in our estimating equations is not the main driver of the disparities that we see in in transplantation and and in particular in referral for transplantation. I think there are likely some other um, uh, structural inequities that are at play there that that are separate from from EGFR. But I do think that given that we have a pretty hard and fast threshold as far as uh, what EGFR uh, will make a person eligible to be waitlisted, that being under 20, that uh, for sure, if if we... Can we we unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Where does that come from? Why do we... Why is this 20? Does anybody know? I will refer to to those uh, to the transplant neurologists uh, uh, among us uh, to to sort of. And if I can ask, man, that's a that's a question that I have not asked. Uh, Maybe I should ask that question, but I will say that I did have a a conversation recently with our our you know our listing multidisciplinary team that. uh, goes through our patients and actually does the active placement on the wait list, we uh, found that when patients self-report as being black, the higher EGFR is used for listing compared to those that, that do not or there is no self-reported race, they would use that lower EGFR. Um, however, from our clinical practice, we have not found that you know using that higher EGFR has really prevented patients from being active on the wait list. And I think that really goes along with the disparities in, in referrals and the lower rates of preemptive transplantation um, in the Black population. As an individual practitioner, do you ever go and do a 24-hour creatinine clearance or something else to get a more, uh, maybe less biased or cleaner uh, EGFR? I so rarely, unfortunately, have that situation that I'd I've not ever done a 24-hour collection, but there there definitely could be a situation where that would be appropriate. But generally, we're seeing patients once they're already on dialysis, even for several years. And so at that point, you know, the EGFR does not matter for, for listing. So as a, as a non-transplant nephrologist, I have a more naive question uh, before that. And, you know, uh, we, uh, in Canada, we don't list them for a disease donor transplant until they start dialysis. So, uh, which is slightly different than uh, what you guys do. So let's say, you know, as an example, just for our listeners, um, let's say I have patients who have, you know, fantastic insurance uh, and who are, you know, educated from an affluent part of the city. And I've got a patient with PKD, uh, polycystic kidney disease, whose GFR is 19. Sorry, I list them in 2018. And and Joel has, you know, some inner city population and people on Medicaid, for example, uh, someone with badly controlled diabetes, uh, don't even have insurance. Sometimes, you know, they, they miss appointments. Uh, the GFR was 22, and the next time Joel sees him, they miss some appointments. It's 15. By the time you know Joel stops an ACE inhibitor or whatever, he tries to do things. And by the time all this is done, uh, say today they are on dialysis, uh, and 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 he gets around to listing them today, but they are already on dialysis. And my patients with PKD, whose GFR was 19 two years ago, their GFR is now 17, right? Which is pretty common. So am I right in say- saying that my patient with PKD? will be two years ahead of Joel's patient with diabetic nephropathy who's already on dialysis. You are correct. That, that is totally crazy. Because, it is you know, that insane. Is a huge, I agree. a huge disparity, you know, because people who don't have access to health care. And I'll tell you, my patient who has diabetes and is diabetic is on dialysis is still not listed two years on, di- on dialysis because they're having trouble getting their colonoscopy. They can't get transportation for their cardiac cath. They're still waiting to get an appointment with the hematologist because they had thrombocytopenia a couple of years ago. The barriers to get patients with low socioeconomic status onto a transplant list is just, it's immense. 
it's I think it is important to note that there was a recent change to the the kind of waitlist protocols where your waitlist starts at the time of dialysis. So that does kind of help some patients. Obviously, it's not ideal, but if you do have those patients that are not presenting to the kidney transplant clinic and they've been on dialysis for several years, at least they can accrue some and it's some and that's been huge. Time. That has been a huge benefit, but. You know, this doesn't happen with livers because we give livers to the very sickest patients. And we ha- and when they created the system for transplant for kidneys, they viewed kidney dialysis as this kind of life-sustaining procedure and not something that has very high morbidity and mortality. And I really, I agree with what uh, Swapnil was saying about what they do in Canada, that the deceased donors go solely to people on dialysis. That sounds right to me. Yeah. You know, and so the living, but that speaks to why we have such tremendous disparities, particularly in um, preemptive transplantation, because they would have to a person would have to be listed and go through all of those those uh, hurdles as far as getting waitlisted. And I, I think that those structural inequities play a bigger role there, I think, than, than this issue as far as uh, where they fall as far as their EGFR, regardless of whether it's with consideration of race or not. Yeah, I mean, as I find it is just so hard and unfortunate to get someone a preemptive kidney transplant. And when it happens, it's almost like amazing that it was able to happen. And your example of an ADPKD patient is pretty much the classic preemptive. They're, it's a population that really is aware of their disease. They know about it a long time, you know, because the father and uncle and grandfather all had it. Not all men, not all men. There's some grandmothers in there and there's some aunts in there also. I apologize. And they do get listed right when they're 20. I mean, you can, uh, you can be listed when it's higher than 20. You just can't be active on the wait list. Interesting. Interesting. I never... Okay. But this is a good opportunity, I think, for the field to take a better look at, I mean, how we assess kidney function and what that means. EGFR was an advance that we went over from 19 or 1976, 19... Uh, 99 and we started utilizing it and I think we started using it just too frequently and in too many scenarios and we need to look at creatinine trajectory we need to look at proteinuria and albuminuria we have primary care physicians interested in that and being more on their mind than just um, looking at creatinine values and well and I and I think Ali's point from earlier was super important is that when you use it for a population it is super powerful like you look at the stuff that was his initials as go did being able to predict hospitalization and mortality based on egfr and it is amazing how effective it is or the stuff that tandy does Tan, not Tandy. Na- Nav Tangri. And you were mentioning it's uh, Alan, Alan Go is uh, the It's thing. Alan Go. Thank you. But Tangri. But Tangri <laughs> yeah, so the, the kidney failure risk equation, I it, think, is something that if you had a patient like uh, Swap said that has maybe uh, EGFR of 30, but they had a lot of proteinuria, maybe even uh, there are some kinetic creatinine equations you can throw in there as well and show their risk of progression is, you know, 25% at, at a year or two. That person might be able to be listed. I mean, so we we can go beyond EGFR. We can be more sophisticated. It's not set in in stone, and we can have. And then other patients might not be appropriate where they have an EGFR twenty five for five ten years. Yeah, exactly. So the other part with the EGFR and the precision is the drug dosing aspect, right? We we pretend like metformin can be given if the GFR is thirty two, but suddenly if it's twenty nine, you cannot give it. Uh, all that stuff is just crazy. We, we we believe that something magical happens at a threshold and all sorts of decisions change. SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, you cannot give them below a certain GFR. 
and and it's okay for nephrologists who know uh, but many of these patients are being cared by primary care physicians and and pharmacists you know and for them these rules are written in you know carved in uh, stone yeah uh, especially for drugs that have high toxicity where you really have a low margin for error and so we definitely need something better if it's that inaccurate. Yeah, Ali was using the example of some of the anticoagulants. You want to kind of discuss that a little bit, Ali? Because I thought that was, that was a really useful uh, discussion that you used. Yeah, and, and that's why I think like giving a range may actually be it, be the better alternative. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm now advocating for my own view, opinion here in this regard. It's just like- I'm all about range. the range as well, Ali. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, on, I'm on board with the range. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's kind of, I, I was like, to be honest, surprised of my own simple-minded way of looking at EGFR day in, day out since my training and really not questioning the the precision of it right up until when looking at the data it's like you look at it every day and i think one thing in our community to really uh, one way to really bring it into the eyesight of of clinicians nephrologists and non-nephrologists is really give them the, the the range of uncertainty like you know if, if you for gfr would give the gfr a 95 percent confidence interval it would be even huge bigger than what i put in that blog post right so <laughs> it's like it's it's all over the entire spectrum of things and and that is with drug dosing the the, the if you look at the majority of the package inserts are actually not going by EGFR, they are going by Cockroft called creatinine clearance. Uh, that That's the other thing. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, I, don't, I don't know. I just want our listeners to know that Joel just silently screamed in his video. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and why don't we, why don't we just take something. a moment? Why don't we, why don't we just kind of... <laughs> the, Matt the robot sample. Matt did what? a nice little intro to Cockroft Galt, uh, but this is... The fact that this became the dominant way that we measure kidney function... Uh, for by 20 the, years. Well, and no, and still years. today, the FDA requires Cockroft yeah, Gall. clinical trials. Cockroft I want to tell everybody one thing. I'm very proud of each of you for not You're mentioning welcome. Ward Renal the entire You're time. <laughs> I mean, that is really... Uh, you had I, to break the you streak. You yourself, right? You broke the streak, <laughs> man. <laughs> I'm giving everyone an award. Cockroft Gall is Canadian. Uh, that's the only... And uh, I would rather thing. use the baclofen dosing <laughs> than uh, the anticoagulant. Right, so Cockroft Galt, 1976, veteran. It's a, it's a veterans hospital, right? No, no, it's it's Canadian, so it's Quebec and uh, Saint John's, Newfoundland, but it's all men. And they're not even all Caucasian. And they're not even American. They're all Caucasians. <laughs> they're all men, and they're all hospitalized. Right, they're not even. Oh, man, so so there was no Celine Dion in that cohort. <laughs> There's not. I think it's uh, Sam Dion, unfortunately. <laughs> Sam Dion, <What>? his <laughs> uncle. Yeah, Sorry. her uncle. Uh, and so, and then the gold standard there, right, is a 24-hour creatinine clearance, and then they create a, a an equation to estimate the creatinine clearance, which is just an estimate of GFR. Right, so you have an estimate of an estimate, and this is what you know. As Matt said, medical legions of medical students memorized: one forty minus age, mass in kilograms, zero point eight five of female, seventy two times the serum creatinine. Now, Matt, if there were no women in the trial, how where's this zero point eight five come from? They basically just made that up. Yes, exactly. they just no made validation. it up, and no that they zero validation. They validated in more men and then made up fifteen percent. Uh, but to be a stickler, because we are you know nerds here, um, <laughs> Cockroft Gold gives creatinine clearance in uh, mils per minute. There is no body surface area there. 
The difference with GFR. And that's what I liked about it. You just exactly. So the difference with GFR, it is indexed to the standard person who is 1.73 meter square surface area. Uh, so that, for drug dosing, that is important, right? So if you have got a little old lady with a surface area of 1.5 meter square, so her GFR may be different than her creatinine clearance. Her her estimate, her standardized GFR may be different than her. A uh, true GFR, uh, which is you know, correct. And we should use the true GFR if we're with drug dosing. We should use the standardized. Yeah, exactly. That and that's why FDA still uses Cockroft Gold because you know the that's the reason. Gives you, that's the reason. So uh, there is a movement towards uh, you know back calculating. So they call it de-adjusted, right? So you uh, you calculate the body surface area, actual body surface area, and you take that one point seven three out. Um, so, uh, but it's a little bit complicated, uh, again. How do you calculate body surface area? There are five calculations and depending on which one you use, you may come to a different thing. So that's the other thing. They, I also put that reference in the, in that post is like, yeah, how do you cal- calculate body surface area? Like up to you. Yeah, yeah. You need, yeah, you need a, you need a height and weight, uh, and, and you plug it in. Well, you know, but then what, you what can't do it. So here's the about. thing: if you have if you have people on the sp- on the extreme spectrums, right? So extreme obesity, malnourished, and those things, then you should be taking the ideal body weight, not body surface area, because that's the other issue. But overall, I think if you take from Cockroft Gold and you go into CKD Epi, you know, it's we did we didn't make revolutionary changes here. We didn't go from gunshot to precision medicine and from from uh, you know, uh, urine analyses to genomic studies. It's you know, a little bit better, you know, a little bit less bias, some a little bit less inaccuracy. The precision is the same. It's like the same, we made the same level of impro- improvement and evolution as we did with dialysis over the past 60 years. That's like where nephrology is creative, right? Taking something with it, now that is off topic, but basically, you know, perpetuating the same thing, improving on the calculation by adding in phosphorus and making it a little bit more... What is that? Phosphorus always gets trashed on our podcast. (laughs) It deserves to be. It deserves to be. Nasty, nasty for us. Let's talk about transparency. I think that's another issue that I found is very shocking is that a patient comes to a health center and gets a form and fills it out. And, you know, there's a box that comes up and they click on it and it changes multiple parameters in their record. Or they don't click on it and it doesn't. And oftentimes, physicians might not even know this is happening behind the scenes. And I think that is something that we need to um, rectify and we need to be way more transparent. The other thing we need to be more transparent about is, although nephrologists know that this is inaccurate, I think a lot of physicians will believe that it is very accurate. And I think that's where Deidre was saying we need to... I think you give nephrologists too much credit. I think... There's been so much emphasis on this EGFR, and we use it in so many places. Reading Ali's blog post, and then, and I pulled the one of his core references is this article by Perini et al. in Nature Reviews Nephrology that looks at the analysis of EGFR. And one of the earth shattering parts about it is that the statistics that have been used to analyze MDRD and CKD epi, at least according to this article, are really not the correct statistics. And they recommend a statistic called the P 
and they actually want to do something more tight, which is a P10. But the P30 is kind of a conventional way of looking at that, and that is the fraction of patients that are within 30%, plus or minus 30% of the, of the measured EGFR. So, and, well, uh, and for- the, the, If you look at the uh, 2012 paper by Inker in New England Journal of Medicine, they do look at uh, P30 and P20 in the CKD epicreatinine, CKD epicystatin C, and the, com- and the combined formula. Mm-hmm. So that has been applied. And, and, but, but the numbers are like, it's like 60%, right? Right. So that means forty percent. Thirty. So depending on where they are, and, and this is termed accuracy, and then bias is the difference you are from the measured to the estimated, and then accuracy is how many are within the thirty percent, or if you even want to get, um, uh, you can even get higher than that. Um, so if you go less than uh, fifteen, uh, then you have a P thirty in the twenty to thirty range, percent range. Um, but in some of the higher ones, it drops down to five or, or 10. But yeah, it's, it, these are not great equations. And that's why I like the range. Everybody's freaking out about saying, oh, we need one number because we like to trend it. We like to look at it. But it's so imprecise that I don't know if it's and I think we we can get better. Like there are technology that's coming along the pike that I think will improve GFR, will measure it. Uh, and we, it, it will happen. And I hope that this puts a spotlight on that and we invest in that. If we can measure gene arrays on tumors, every tumor that comes out, um, give different immunotherapies, um, we, can, we can get better measured GFR. We can do that. How about your mice, Matt? Do you measure GFR yeah, in your so mice? Yeah, so in mice, I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> I measure GFR in mice and I've been looking at the new technology. So there's a really cool um, thing called the NIC kidney, a non-invasive kidney function monitor. And what you do is you give one injection and they're working on making an oral uh, pill for this, but you don't need any um, laboratory equipment at all. You just need a little small USB sized um, monitor that looks at um, FITSI over an hour of uh, one hour and so this fitzy is can you can you say what fitzy is yeah so fitzy is just a, yeah fitzy is a, a green fluorescent molecule and it's covalently linked to synestrin synestrin is a small carbohydrate that's freely filtered great name uh and <laughs> <laughs> and then what what you see is that uh, this monitor that sits on the skin of the mouse and the human these are, it's also in human uh, clinical studies right now uh, you can look at the decay of FITSI or green fluorescence over an hour and then calculate the GFR. And you have a machine that sits right there and it tells you exactly what the GFR is. You can do this repeatedly every day, and several times time. a day. Real time. It's real time. It's GFR. And that so like th- and this are the things that we're going to see um, being developed in the future. And can you imagine in this scenario, you could do a clinical trial and not have to send blood samples anywhere. Amazing. So... I, I want to be uh, a little bit more forward thinking and think, you know, nephrology is going to be the innovator. We're going to find out new ways and new ways to, to diagnose kidney disease more accurately. And uh, so I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited about that. It's concerning to me that we're starting to see uh, the FDA is starting to accept this EGFR and changes in EGFR, even over very short periods of times to approve drugs. Like we saw that with... Um, with Tolvaptan for ADPKD 
uh, that was a sh- what, like a one year trial, and they showed a, showed a difference in in EGFR, and that was enough to get that drug accepted. And the more I learned about how, how inaccurate this, the more I'm worried that we're establishing drugs that may not be nearly as effective as we think. Yeah. They are. So so we did talk about it. Sorry, we did talk about it uh, briefly in the last podcast on uric acid. Like remember when mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Schustak pointed out that at the high, but those end, were measured GFRs. Have, those were measured GFRs, uh, but uh, after the podcast, Sunil Badvi, who did the CKD fix, uh, sent me a message and I'll add uh, that saying that he said uh, GFR slope has been approved, conditionally approved by the FDA for drugs. Uh, it's kind of, you know, in certain circumstances, a change in GFR is enough uh, for FDA. And you kind of look at all this and you wonder how... And I think, and I think on a population, again, population like a large cohort, you have 2,000 patients, if their GFR or if their estimated GFR, mm, the slope changes, you know, that has a little bit more legitimacy than, again, using that number for, for the individual Karina, uh, now that you, you've been listening to us talk, tell us about your thoughts about innovation in medicine now that you're a medical student you're advocating for new things. Um, how do you, when you're listening to us talk about this, what, what do you think about? I love the mouse thing. I think that's great. <laughs> As a f- aspiring physician scientist, I love I love thinking about this stuff. Um, I was more thinking about, um, I mean, anything's better than race, in my opinion, right? If you, the second you start to conflate race with biology, you are doing something wrong. And so any measure that is more objective then race is an improvement. And I wanted to ask you about the, um, when you guys talk about a range, I think the, um, the hard thing about a range, right, is you're defining the upper end of your range by race still. No, Because I, the I, two numbers that I we have it, you, are still based on race. You can, you can don't, no, I think what you do is look at, I would say that for every human, you would have a plus or minus range for that EGFR estimate that, would not have race as cal- like the race calculations out, and then you have a, a range for each individual that you would look at and say, you know, that's plus or minus. I mean, if you look at the data, that's what it looks like. I mean, if you have a 60 GFR, it's still plus or minus sometimes 10. So, I mean, we, we and I even, that, even like if you, you have, a, let's say, even if you take that upper range, which was derived from the uh, black community. Um, I think that goes into the point of what Joel mentioned, uh, referencing Dr. Powers, that, you know, you don't want to throw away information and data gained from a large ethnic group and just, I don't know, I would love to hear... Would you classify um, the number of patients in MDRD study as a large ethnic group? Well, in CKD, thousands. Yeah. yeah. Even so, I think defining black is really, really challenging biologically, and I don't think it makes sense to see that as a separate group rather than, you know, throwing it out, starting from scratch, using an actual diverse group that is not segregated by some political definition of race. Um, and Karina, since you're um, an aspiring that. scientist, one thing that struck me is I do functional genomics is a lot of our genome-wide association studies have groups categorized by race, but it's self-identification. And if you're thinking about it, we are trying to find genetic variants in a very precise way that influences risk of CKD. And then they're using EGFR 
to define who has CKD and who doesn't. And then like the patients who self-identifies, even though if you're looking at genetics, you can be looking at ancestral markers and uh, the data are there. So it's just one of those things where <clears throat> eventually people want to use genetics and these types of findings in terms of variants that turn out to be significant to develop genetic risk scores. That would include some uh, component of ancestry, or I'm not sure if they would actually be putting in self-identified race, but these are things that we need to talk about and think about as people keep pushing for precision medicine. And we still have a very imprecise variable that's going to mess that up. Yeah, and as we say in our petition, we make the differentiation between race and ancestry. And ancestry is genetic, and you can group people based on ancestry. It's it's when you start looking at people's skin color or having someone talk about the way that they were raised or how they self-identify, um, where it becomes difficult to use that biologically. Um, yeah, I think exactly. another I, another I, issue with that is that when the person identifies it, they don't know what the implication of that is. It's right. challenging, and so um, it happens at a time that's far removed from where the decision is going to be made from where you know the GFR gets changed. Um, that's a problem, and and what if that person did not check it and then should have, or vice versa? And it, it it's it's a mess. I think it it, it is not a clean process. And as we were looking through Duke and we were, and we asked questions, you know, can the intake person change race if they want to, you know? Um, I think uh, Ebony Bulaware uh, brought up uh, a, uh, some of her research that did show that a significant number of patients do not self-report their race, but somehow have been um, labeled uh, as uh, a certain ancestry. And uh, for instance, uh, we haven't mentioned, but uh, in South Africa, the race coefficient actually made the GFR, um, it was in the opposite direction. And so, uh, but if that individual was in the, you know, um, you know, they could be labeled. So I think it, it's a, it's a problem because it, it, there's not a standardized approach to it. We don't, the patients don't know the implications of it. The physicians often don't even know it's been applied. And I think these are all really big problems. Yeah, we talk about in our petition, we say um, the statistic is up to 10% of black uh, individuals in the Bronx in New York are African immigrants. And you, you, with that study, right, the African-American, in quotes, EGFR does not accurately reflect their true EG, um, GFR. So you're... For this 10% of black patients, you're actually using a completely wrong measurement if you just ask for their race um, because they're not American. It doesn't work with that population either. So it's it's not something that you can just define based off of what someone looks like. I think it's also important to think about APOL1 in this context as well. There was a correspondence in the New England Journal last year where they found that APOL1 risk variants exist at appreciable frequencies among many populations, including those that may not self-identify as, as Black or African-American. And so I think that's also important to consider if you're using that as a tool to kind of restratify and try to identify patients that may uh, progress faster with their CKD. And I know Samira mentioned in one of our work group sessions that in pediatrics patients, race is not 
um, taken into account. It's uh, the EGFR is measured based on height. So something changes when, so yeah, when the patient turns a certain age, suddenly their race is, in, is important. Um, and that's also, you know, <laughs> strange. It was interesting at the uh, the University of Chicago uh, conference, uh, Dr. Inker, Inker, is that how you pronounce her name? She presented data in which they looked at the CKD epi instead of race, they added weight and height, which is interesting because that seems, you know, when I think about, well, how would you fix it? Well, maybe if we got a better sense of body size and that was worse than using this race, however it was identified, this isn't the CKD epi data, that it was not, you know, not as accurate. Again, population wise, we know in individuals it sucks, but uh, it was, that was eye-opening to me because I would have expected that to perform better. I always assumed they didn't use height and weight because they're so hard to get demographically, but it was actually not as accurate. I have actually in hypotheses. What if you uh, use preference for blues music? Blues music, right? So you take that, and what if that even better predicts uh, your true GFR? So if, if you do that, right, and then a patient comes into your clinic, would you use different calculation based on their preference for blues? Would, would, would you take that and say, you know, you like blues, let me use that correction factor. That's going to be your GFR because, you know. Is it self-declared blues fan or is it a sign? Great question. Yeah. Well, I think that's where uh, it's, you know, when, the, when you collect data and you then use it, that is where you need to be more thoughtful about it. And I, I share this blog post in Health Affairs that really, I think it's very important for researchers to really think more thoughtfully about when they are measuring variables, how, why they want to measure them and really think about that. Uh, we'll share that in the post notes, but I think if anyone wants to really push themselves and really think about this, um, I felt like that, that was, uh, that really kind of opened my eyes up. You just don't measure things to measure them. When you measure them, you need to, be, you need to think about why am I measuring it? What is the purpose of this? Yeah, and I think just to add, I mean, uh, to that blues comment, I think is an interesting, um, interesting idea. I am of the, the opinion, though, that, you know, there is a role for capturing race in some of the epidemiologic studies that we do in particular. I think um, looking at, uh, and, and we've seen this with COVID, for example, and, and, and when we have had opportunities to look at disaggregated data um, where we can then find like which populations are being um, disproportionately affected, for example. I think it, I think there is a role. And I do think um, as fraught as it is, and I, and I definitely want us to find a way to get rid of it from our um, estimating equation, race is capturing something. Um, um, and and that that something I, I I really wish we could measure that instead of 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 using race in uh, in this variable or as a variable in the in the estimating equations. But it is it's clearly catching something or capturing something. I don't think it's the something we think it is. I don't think it's ancestry. Um, I don't think it's muscle mass. I, I think it I think it may be some some uh, social, some, some exposures. Um, it could be diet. It could be like the, the thing that ends up, uh, and when I say it's capturing something, meaning it's, it's, it's doing something in the equation where it's changing what we're seeing in terms of creatinine. We don't know what that is. Um, and, and so I think ideally we'd be able to measure that other thing and include that in the equation. Um, and I think that, but that's, that's, I think how we landed at what we, what we have. Um, so yeah, so I, I just want to, to that blues example. So if someone, if someone liked blue, like the blues, right. If there was a population that, that liked the blues, probably something else related to 
the love of blues <laughs> that would be driving their their GFR. And I think that's what we're seeing showing up in our estimating equation. But Deidre, I have one question. If we take um, people's very external variable like uh, let's 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 set aside knowledge about ancestry but just the looks and and someone is black and uh and is assigned a different gfr a different but is assumed a different biological feature intrinsically just based on that and if we if, if we perpetuate that in our clinical practice, in our teaching, in our medicine, in our care, in our decision-making, don't we then further drive down the message that humans are different intrinsically, have different function based on something we know it doesn't exist, race? And we keep saying race, but we also keep saying it doesn't exist. So actually we are we are half the problem, I would say. But if we do that, don't we then also not give legitimacy to the people who then come and say, well, based on the skin color, the creatinine is different. Then based on the skin color, capabilities are different. Then based on the skin color, superiorities are different. And, and all those things, it seems to me that we kind of, we are as clinician, researchers, scientists, we drive this message. If we say people are intrinsically different based on color. Now, you can take the same thing and bring in ethnicity and bring in, I would say ethnicity at least is a little bit more complex because it's not only ancestry, uh, but it's also social kind of habitat and everything else. But let's take ancestry and appearance. You know, I feel that it perpetuates this issue when at the end of the day, I really can't, I really can't predict. You know, you may as well tell me you like blues. I, I'll be as accurate in my estimate as anything else. Um, I, and so that's where I see the problem of us perpetuating. I know that the African-American community worked hard for a long time to to get people to say black and to emancipate so to speak i don't know maybe i'm wrong I, I hear you i think we i think we are we would we are uh legitimating in some ways uh this this um highly discriminatory <laughs> construct right i do think like i said though i do think that it because there are societal structures that have led to race uh in this country meaning something Right. Mean, and by meaning something, meaning it, it can it can on average signal that a person has 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 experienced certain things, particularly in this country. Right. And that that may be the types of things that we might want to capture that are that, that we think might be having playing a role in these equations that we're looking at is all is what I'm saying. But I, I fully agree with you that that by including it in our in our practice of medicine, that we are giving legitimacy to to the the, the, the use of these um, kind of categorizations. Um, uh, and, 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 and the stereotypes that, that, that follow. I want to add something about the COVID mm -hmm. example that you just gave. I think the difference, right, is that with, if we used race in the way that we do with EGFR to the COVID example, we would say, oh, black and there's something biologically different about black and Latinx communities or black and Latinx people 
that that's why they're getting COVID more. Um, and we, we don't say that. Like, there's no one out there saying there's something biologically different because of their race that they're getting. And so the, the, the difference is not the, it's the causation. Not I, the I agree. Unfortunately, right? there like, are people okay. that do think that, though. But, but, the, but okay. it, yeah, and I spend a, the better part of many of my days um, trying to, uh, to help them oh, yeah. to not think that. But, but, there, but there definitely are people that will say, oh, Black people are dying from COVID because of comorbidities, you know, or, or they're, they're sort of equating this, this sort of um, susceptibility uh, to, to, to COVID to inherent factors. So I do think, I do think um, that, that it is being applied uh, in COVID in that way. I'm, I'm more of an advocate of, of using it as a way to help us to identify people that are at risk and for, because of, <laughs> I, I would say, because of factors like structural racism um, and that, uh, that it may, may need targeted um, outreach and, and support because of that risk um, and, and less so to think of it as uh, in the case of COVID that, okay, well, you know, case closed, we know that black people are going to die because they're black people, right? Like that, that and I, I'm afraid that that's, that's, some people do hold that, unfortunately, they hold that sort of belief, unfortunately. Yeah, like use of it as an environmental rather exactly. than a biological mm -hmm. factor. Absolutely. Well, it's getting late in the hour. Let's wrap this up. I want to give one last word. And I want each of us to really think about how this discussion is going to be a positive uh, for the field and for patients. And we're going to start with Jenny. Yeah, so I think the discussion is definitely, regardless of what the outcome is for each institution and uh, whether or not it's adopted nationally, um, I think that having the conversation itself is an important exercise for everyone to rethink and also basically open the door for doing better, right? And so we spent a lot of time talking about all of the deficiencies of these equations, but now there really is um, an opportunity and a momentum to, uh, to basically effect change and also uh, improve the care that we give in terms of rethinking how we deliver it. Swap, you want to jump in? Um, yeah, so for, for us, I mean, this has been amazing. Uh, like I said before, uh, we have known about the problems with uh, GFR. We have known about the fact that it's not precise uh, and we have carried on. Um, so sometimes, you know, you need a groundswell of, of uh, uh, a critical mass for us to acknowledge that uh, something needs to change. Um, uh, locally, uh, for us, race is not coded in our EMR in any way, um, and, and only one GFR is reported. Uh, so nephrologists manually have to, you know, multiply uh, by the uh, coefficient. Uh, so all, uh, and often it's only the nephrologist who would know to do that. Most people would ignore the fine print. Uh, so I think the harm is um, is is less, and it's easier. Uh, we just have to acknowledge, you know, educate the nephrology community uh, to get rid of that. Uh, so it's it's a little bit easier, but it, it it's definitely some some changes still needed. Uh, Deidre, do you want to have a last word? I'm sure. So I'm I'm really hopeful that um, that this uh, focus and sort of reexamination on something that we've been doing for a long, long time um, is is going to lead us to to um, doing better. I think by by our patients and also communicating better both with them as well as with our with our colleagues, particularly our colleagues in primary care. Um, and that I, I hope that this is uh, going to spur us to have a greater focus on 
the inequities that exist in kidney disease more broadly, um, because I actually think that those are bigger problems in many ways than EGFR. Um, and so I, I, but I hope that this is going to be a springboard for a greater emphasis on those issues. And I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind for me is when I teach trainees how to be clinicians and physicians, one of the first things I always teach them is to always ask why. And I think that makes you a very strong clinician. And I think this is just another example that asking why and delving deeper into looking at why we do things the way that we do um, is very important and can be very enlightening. And even for me personally, in my you know clinical sphere of interest, we have really uncovered a lot kind of asking important questions about the listing process. And even within my institution and other institutions, there was some confusion about how exactly is that listing done, which GFR is chosen. And this whole conversation really kind of sparked some more transparency about that and kind of sharing how that process um, happens and moves forward. And so I think, um, like Dr. Cruz said, very hopeful also that there are good things ahead. And um, I think increased transparency will um, make our transplantation process hopefully better and help more people. Joel? You know, uh, it's wild to think that the police murdering George Floyd in Minneapolis has triggered a wave of a reevaluation of how we measure GFR. Like <laughs> the fact that those are connected and they are right is it's mind boggling. And it's like it, the way our society is interconnected and the way things are coming together, it really is amazing. It just, I think everybody was so frustrated with that occurrence. They were like, what can I do to change my world to increase justice? And we're seeing this is how it's happening in medicine. And I think uh, the future of medicine is in good hands, seeing that it's bubbling up from the uh, uh, the literal ground with the uh, M1 and M2 medical students. I think we're in good hands. Ali? Yes. And, and just, just making a brief plug for Melanie Honig, who led the change uh, two years before, before, before the clinic killing of George Floyd but uh, I do agree I think um, let's uh, let's hope that that at least the best of thing we can do uh, for having good things come Ali back. you broke the rule you can't name drop tell us who Melanie Honig is oh Melanie Honig Melanie Honig is uh, one of uh, the faculties at the Bath Israel Deaconess Medical Center she's a nephrologist one of my mentors back there when I did fellowship training and it was the year before I I uh, came to leave um, and, and moved to California when the debate internally came to why even do we have this different? And actually, it is an institution where Martin Pollack is the chief who worked on the APOL1 story and things. So it was a very thoughtful discussion. I still remember the faculty of, of whether it makes sense or not and ultimately was was uh, was uh, decided to remove that and then let it be arranged, so to speak. So that I think my last word for that would be um I think I think nephrology will change I think we will change and we will be having better estimates in coming for more individually tailored GFR assessment um I do uh think it will take some time and at that time should not be and that should not be an excuse to perpetuate the status quo i think that should change now and uh my last hope is that the nkf uh, asn task force just don't come back with yet another 
little bit more accurate estimating equations uh, with phosphate in it or albumin in it or something else on the regression. But really, do do become do do be innovative and and, and sorry. Uh, Karina, uh, thank you so much for coming and uh, putting up with us for over an hour. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, we've really so enjoyed much. listening to you and having you as a guest. Uh, and we want to hear about uh, how you take this and apply it to your education and um, you know how you're going to incorporate this into your uh, letter for Nephrology Fellowship. <laughs> Are you going to be a nephrologist? I just, I don't know. just announced now it. Now I think maybe I yes, should. Yes, you definitely should. No, do whatever you want. Don't, don't listen to me. Short train Um, ride down to Baltimore. You can come hang out with me as well. I'd love to shadow you. (laughs) No, 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 no. We're 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 actively. Deidre, what are they? What are they doing at? What are they doing at Hopkins for uh, uh, EGFR? What are you guys doing? We we have not made we have not made a change yet. We've we've uh, we we had in our last faculty meeting. I led a discussion around it. uh, The the considerations. I think there's energy around thinking about the range. Mm Um, but we haven't made a change yet. I think the, you know, the general sense is, I think folks want to hear from this, what this task force comes up with. So. Holly, what are they doing at Kaiser? Uh, well, Joel, we had Karina's last word. Am I giving my last word? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's what we would. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we hear. That's why these are three hours long. <laughs> uh, um, well, I was saying that I'm so grateful for the actual physicians in charge who, are willing to say, you have a good idea, let's listen to the medical student, let's bring the medical student in, like we think fresh eyes and fresh ideas are good. Um, I've learned that it's okay to push, it's it's good, it's good to reevaluate things and to have mentors who are willing to let you speak up um, and let you ask the whys. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And I also want to say that in this process, I've learned about how many black physicians and scholars have been doing this work for years and years and years. And it shouldn't just take us non-black med students standing up and um, pushing for the change to happen. I want to acknowledge that this is an ongoing thing that has been ongoing um, and that maybe hopefully um, this change will let us listen to the black advocates who are advocating for changes in other disciplines that we have not listened to yet. So that's my last word. Okay, I'll try to do a quick last word. Uh, before I do that, um, I don't know what's happening, but I, I promised two, uh, two um, fellows that I would mention them during the podcast, and I strategically did it at the end so we get a couple of people that actually did listen to the whole thing. So uh, Tomas Guerrera and Bila Khalid are both, uh, or one's a graduate, one's a current first year at UNC. And even though I'm at Duke, I'm trying to be peaceful and nice to them. And so I wanted to give both of them a shout out on Freely Filtered. They're, they're big time listeners. Uh, but I've, I've actually to look at this issue and 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 so this is a great opportunity for a nephrologist. I've already mentioned it before is to uh, get the word out about kidney disease. And it is something that we have not been able to do. And I think there's a groundswell. Uh, medical students are all talking about it all over the country. And that is a gr- that is really amazing to see and hear. And we need to take that. Uh, to the next step and educate patients, primary care physicians, and re-even think about how are we going to define kidney disease 
how are we going to have better ways to measure GFR? How are we going to have more risk estimates that can be used in real time? So those patients that don't have CKD for 10 years and nobody ever picked it up, and we can do that. We have the ability to do that. Um, so I'm going to look at this as an opportunity, um, and I've spent uh, time uh, to reflect, to think, and I think when I first sort of saw the discussion, we had this you know, in FJC a year ago, um, the discussion about race and EGFR, and um, I did not act then, and I think I had to come to terms with, with that. I think a lot of nephrologists had to come to terms with that and think about it in a more thoughtful way. And I think we're all going to become better physicians because of it. And we all need to be humble, no matter how, what stage we are in our career and not just get used to the status quo. And I think that's what this has done for me is to not just take for um, what people tell you or what's in a paper and say, this is the truth. And it's oftentimes there's more to it. I think before we say goodnight, I just wanted to say, since we're talking about future of nephrology and future nephrologists, a plug for the ASN Kidney Stars program. If you're a medical student or resident listening and you want some free access to nephrology content, um, please apply for the Kidney Stars program and we'll put that link in the show notes. Excellent. This is a really, this is a great, great episode. Um, thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you.